This is holding it this way, so it can be at a good angle, and the tape is holding it from going on. So it's like, you know what I'm saying? So it's really just very good. <laughs> so they didn't have like the... Uh... No, and neither of the other tripod didn't have that, because I have the piece. Oh, man. Anyway, we're just going to have to... Well, hopefully this isn't like the last time we got this.
you want the uh, if you want the real church experience, we have about 80 year old really uncomfortable church pews. So if you want to sit in church pews, feel free. We'll swing it around. Sing our first song 
um, there is a fountain filled with blood. So we'll sing that together this morning and uh, right after we pray. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the cross, for the gospel, for the good news. Everything, Lord, comes from that. Lord, this fellowship, this time, this beautiful community of believers, it is all rooted in the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, for that work. We want to recognize it. We want to think about it daily. How you came to us, rescued us, reconciled us to you. This is just so unfathomable, Lord. This is just so incredible to still think about us sinners being reconciled with the Holy God. Let this reality, Lord, be in our hearts and minds as we come together and sing. And as we come together and listen to the Word, and as we come together and have fellowship with one another, these are all the things that you made possible through the cross. And we thank you for that. We ask the Lord to lead us, guide us today during this special service, that our songs will be glorifying to you, that the sermon will be convicting under the conviction of your Word, and that we would just go out of here transformed and encouraged. We thank you, Lord, for once again, we thank you for the Breedlands for working out their home, Lord God, and sharing of their resources for us. And we are so grateful to be here in this place, in this country, at this time. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I will be a hypocrite to say I'm sitting, but I'll get you guys to sing. Because I can't say I'm like that. But, we sing with us. Your lyrics are on the back of the bulletin. There is a fountain filled with blood.
And uh, this song reminds us of that, reminds us of, the, of how great um, that God is alone. And uh, let's sing. If you don't know it, please listen to it and then catch on when you get the words. And again, the words are back. So.
morning to be remembered. I hope that you will remember it. I may be a potter to you all this somewhat, but I hope that you'll remember what we talk about. I hope this will remind you of this passage of Scripture and the historical setting that we're going to talk about this morning. I pray this morning that God will open our eyes to what it really means to be a disciple as we read or as Chris read from Luke chapter 14. So let's go to the Lord, to our awesome God this morning, in prayer. Father, thank you that we have the privilege to worship you. You brought two churches together. I thank you for City Hope and for Cornerstone. God, may your name be praised, may it continue to be praised this morning. Most of us are here because by your power and the work of your spirit, we've chosen to follow you. God, may we this morning understand what that really means, the seriousness, the privilege what it meant to a person in the first century AD and what it should mean for us as believers today. God, it's so easy today to name the name of Christ but not to be a disciple in a biblical sense. Open our eyes, God. If we would understand, and may we walk away from here this day with the passion and the commitment and the endurance to follow you with all of our hearts. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Obviously, both rabbis and disciples in Jesus' day were a prayer shawl. Remember Jesus talking about how they would make the tassel, that front tassel, longer because it represented being more spiritual and he condemned them for that. But the disciples of Jesus often called him rabbi. It means master or teacher. It was a position of great honor and respect. And those who followed Christ were called disciples. It came from the Hebrew, tell me. It means a learner from a student. And this was a common relationship in first century Israel. Common relationship throughout time, actually. The rabbi was one that was followed by a group of disciples, a group of learners. And to be honest, it was a very different model than the teacher-student model today. Christian historian Ray Benderland. Ray Vanderlein, excuse me, opened my eyes a number of years ago to have a biblical understanding. So what I am going to share in part today originates for him. So I wanted to give him the credit because God really used him as he, in my life, as he has in many, to understand biblical discipleship. So to understand what discipleship really is, what it should be, what it was in first century Israel, let's begin with this question. 
Where did the rabbi-disciple concept, the relationship, primarily originate? Well, actually, it originated from an obscure area in northern Galilee, right at the tip of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did much of his teaching. God's Word, God's Word tells us that Jesus went into all the villages and cities in Jerusalem, or in Galilee, teaching in their synagogue. And right at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee was an area called the Tri-Village Area, made up of three villages. Bethsaida means fishing to the house of fishing. Only about 6,800 people in Jesus' day. Also, Chorazin, the word means the secret, or here is the mystery. And probably had about 2,000 people in Jesus' day. They were primarily olive growers. And then uh, Capernaum, or Capernaum, means ruined town, also a small fishing villages. Five of Jesus' disciples came from this area. All five of them came from Messiah. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip. All came from Messiah. A small rule. Rule. I can't say that word anymore. <laughs> Fishing village in northern Galilee. Now, keep in mind, this area of Israel was unlike many other areas. Some of the areas had cities. They were actually fairly modern for that day. They had, some of them had theaters. They had stadiums. They had gymnasium. We think of that in relation to athletics. But it's also where our concept of university came from. Some of these cities had hot and cold running water, even or especially in the richer areas of town. Yet, northern Galilee, a place of small villages, is where the concept, at least, of rabbi disciple primarily originated, and where Jesus got five of his disciples. This is where people came to follow the great rabbis in ancient Israel. So why did God arrange history in such a way that northern Galilee would be the place where this model would be most prominent in the ancient world? And honestly, we don't know, and we may never know. However, there are several characteristics in this culture that seem to be conducive to the rabbi-disciple relationship. Ray Vanderland calls these building blocks of discipleship. Not all of them to some degree. But the first building block of discipleship was community. These people lived in what you might call community. Now, it's not identical to a commune, but it was very different living than those of us that live in the American culture. These people, these villages were made up of extended family units. And each extended family unit lived in what's called an insula. And so each individual immediate family would have a room where they would live and do their own things and sleep. But all of these family, immediate family units would share a courtyard. They would share a kitchen. They would share a work area. They worked the same occupation. They went to the synagogue together. They traveled to the feast in Jerusalem together. Their life with God, very different than today, was a communal life. They supported one another. 
encouraged one another. They corrected one another. In our world, we think of ourselves as individuals, don't we? We live, especially today, in a me generation. Everything's about me. I make decisions based on what I want, what my what are my desires, my goals, my wants. But these people view the community as more important than the individual. And that's very important. So one of the building blocks of discipleship we believe to be the community that existed there. But obviously not every person that lived in community became a disciple of a rabbi. There's a second building block, and I've identified this one as worship. Each of these villages had a synagogue. The word means, it came from the Hebrew, it means house of worship. And these synagogues developed about three or 400 AD. They were first primarily places like community centers, a place for people to gather. But eventually they became a place of biblical teaching, a place where people worship on the Sabbath day. It's where the rabbi, their rabbi, or a visiting rabbi would teach, like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the gathering at the synagogue, especially on the Sabbath, was focused on worship, centered on worship. So God was, in a real sense, the center of their lives. A man was scheduled each week to read the scripture. He sat in the Moses seat. And he was responsible for going to the Torah closet and getting out the correct scroll and finding the text and reading the text. Then the rabbi would teach, usually on that scripture. The people were anxious to learn about themselves as Jews, but they were very anxious to learn about God, to worship God. So the second building block of discipleship was, I believe, worship. Life for these people. Even though we would not be in full agreement, as we will see later, life was a God-centered life. It was a worship life. But not everybody that lived in this community, not everybody that worshiped God on the Sabbath at the synagogue became a disciple. There's even more. The third block, building block of discipleship, was Scripture. And this is amazing. I just can't imagine living in this day and age and experiencing what these young boys and girls experienced. But there was a school adjacent to almost all these synagogues. And children at the age of about five, both boys and girls in most of Israel, especially in Northern Galilee, would begin elementary school called Beth Sefer. The curriculum was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And children basically learned to read, to write, and recite all from the Torah. And by the time they finished at age 12, they could recite large sections, if not the whole Torah, the whole Pentateuch. They could even, to a degree, understand it and explain it to someone else. And so it's amazing how educated these young, both boys and girls, were in the ancient world. But after completing Beth Sefer, most of these kids were now considered adults at 12. They would join their parents. The girls would join their mothers to prepare to be wives and mothers. And within two or three years, most of these girls, 15 or 16, were uh, married. Boys would begin at this point, if they had not 
to some degree already, then we began to learn the trade of the family, or the trade of the extended family. Might be fishing, two of these villages was fishing, one was predominantly olive growers, leather workers. There was a trade called technon, which was used to describe both uh, carpentry as well as uh, stone cutting and stone laying. That's the word used to describe what Jesus did. So most began to prepare their lives in their community with their families. However, out of these, out of the boys, there were a few young men at about age 12 that had the passion and the desire to know more, to learn more. They would begin what was called a secondary school, or Beth Madrash. And they, this was taught by the local rabbi. So this is where they would learn the deeper meaning of the Torah. They would also learn the Tanakh, the rest of the Old Testament. And by the time these young men reached the age of 15, they could recite much of the Old Testament scriptures. They could explain it. They could debate it. But even at this point, most of these young men would join their fathers. And again, you know, they probably worked part-time, but they would really get involved in the family business. But out of these young men that attended Beth Midrash, there were a few that wanted to learn more. They wanted to know God better, and they would seek a rabbi to follow, a rabbi that they could be a disciple of. They probably already had a rabbi in mind at this point. Now, while the pattern was for a young man to seek a rabbi to follow, Jesus chose his disciples. Remember? When he went to Matthew? When he went to those that were fishing? Hey, you. Come follow me. And they knew exactly what he meant. Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. But typically, probably not always, but typically, these young men saw the rabbi. Hey, can I follow you? And if he didn't know you very well, most cases he would have. But if he didn't know you very well, he would probably observe you. He might have you follow him for a while. And most of these young men were turned down at this point. Remember the two disciples that had followed John the Baptist and were no longer following him? Most didn't make it. But typically, disciples would follow their rabbi for about 15 years, 14 or 15 years, to about the age of 30. They would go where the rabbi went. They would do what the rabbi did. They had to forsake their families, their family business, any desires or any goals that they had in life. They had to forsake it and give up everything to follow a rabbi. They would attend synagogue with the rabbi. Day after day, they would sit for long hours and listen to their rabbi teach. They continued to memorize the Old Testament text. Most of these memorized the whole, or many of these, memorized <coughs> by the age of 30, the whole Old Testament. I can't even contemplate that today. They would discuss the scriptures. They would learn to debate. They knew the scriptures inside and out, at least from a Jewish perspective. And then at about age 30, the rabbi would say, okay, you've made it. You're now a rabbi. Go make your own disciples. And so 
that's the foundation of the rabbi-disciple relationship. But we have to understand this morning, a disciple was very different than we often think of today as taught in the church today. When we think of a disciple, we typically think of one that wants to know what the rabbi knows. But that's not it at all. It involved that. But that wasn't the primary thrust. In Jesus' day, a disciple was not just one that wanted to know what his rabbi knew. He was one that wanted to be like his rabbi. <clears throat> That's the biblical understanding. One who wants to be what the rabbi is. He wants to be just like the rabbi. He may have a dis different personality, may have a different way of doing things, different gifts. But as far as his passion for God and understanding of God, he wanted to be just like the rabbi. That's the concept of a disciple in Jesus' day. To the disciple, there was nothing more important than becoming like his rabbi. You and I, there should be nothing more important than becoming like Christ. <clears throat> Remember the believers at Antioch were first called Christians? The word means Christ-like. Does that fit us at Cornerstone and City Hope? Are we truly Christ-like? That's the goal of a disciple, to be like our rabbi. To the Jews, Elijah was the prototype of a disciple. Remember Elijah climbed Mount Carmel, had a contestant with the prophets of Baal, climbed back down, oversaw their destruction, climbed back up and prayed passionately, climbed back down and then ran 20 miles, standing in front of a chariot. That's the kind of passion that's required to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But the prototype of the New Testament authors was often athletics. And maybe because the Gentiles were not that familiar with Elijah, but they were familiar with athletics. New Testament writers used that model to teach about discipleship. Remember Paul writing to Timothy, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules, using the analogy. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Therefore I run in such a way as not what I aim. I box in such a way as not to be the heir, but I discipline my body and make it my slave after I have, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul wrote, to the Philippians, I press on to the goal, to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
We see in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, again, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I kept the faith. We see in the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us at the stadium, let us lay aside every encumbrance and every sin that so easily entangles us, that snares us, that stops us. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame that sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in a real sense, Jesus is our model. See, being a disciple involves the commitment of a dedicated athlete. The passion, the endurance, the commitment to finish well. Being a disciple requires going where the rabbi goes, regardless of the path that that takes us. Regardless of how harsh or how difficult life may become, it involves forsaking all to follow him because it demands total commitment. Total surrender. Now don't think this is somehow secondary to salvation. That this is somehow optional for a believer. Listen to the words of Christ in Matthew 16 for just a moment. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it, his life, for my sake, will find it. We're talking about losing our life. We're saving our life. He, he continues, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? But what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Discipleship is not secondary to salvation. It is salvation. Those who have believed. Look, look at the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. This is the testimony of them. They were true disciples just like Moses gave up the riches of Egypt. He forsook Things that were beneficial for him. Each of us are called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then go and make disciples. That's the model that Jesus gave us. After his resurrection and just before the ascension, Jesus said to his disciples, All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go, or as you go, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. There's the model. We must first be disciples. We must be willing to forsake everything to follow Christ, and then we go. We become a rabbi in a sense, and we give our lives to making disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus and go and make them.
So here's the question for us this morning. Are you a Talmud? Are you a disciple? Not how we've often been taught it today, but in a true biblical sense of forsaking everything to follow the rabbi. Are you a disciple? Am I a disciple? Are you willing to forsake everything to follow him? Are we consumed every minute of every day to be like the rabbi? Not just to know what he's taught us, but to be like the rabbi. To be holy as he is holy. Do we wake up with it in the morning? Do we think about it throughout the day? Do we go to bed with it at night? Does it drive us into the scriptures to learn about the Lord Jesus? Does it cause us to spend time in prayer seeking to know him intimately? Do we have the fire? Do we have a passion? And I can tell you as I went through this last night, reviewing for today, God convicted me like never before since I came to know Christ. I want to have the passion to really want to be like Jesus Christ. I know there is nothing more important. You know, sadly, the very people that heard Jesus teach rejected Christ in Northern Galilee. Jesus later said this, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Messiah! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The very people that heard Jesus come to their synagogue and preach and teach and tell them the truth, it made them more accountable to God. But remember, it's not good enough to hear the words of Jesus. It's not good enough to know what he taught and what he, how he speaks to our hearts. It, it's not good enough. It's not good enough to sit under sound preaching and teaching. It might just give you more light and make you more accountable to God. Here's the issue. We must have a changed heart. A supernatural change of heart. By the power of God, we must turn from our sins and from everything that prevents us from following after Him with all of our hearts. Are you willing to forsake everything to follow Jesus Christ? Are you? Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. This rabbi, the God-man, is perfectly holy, just, he's perfectly righteous. He bore the sins of everyone 
that would ever believe. He satisfied the wrath of God for everyone that would believe. He was raised from the dead for our justification. He offers forgiveness for all who in faith repent of their sins. He rescues those who confess Him as Lord. He declares righteous those who believe in His name. The Apostle Paul wrote this. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be rescued from your sins and the consequences. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, God gives us His righteousness. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ is placed upon our account. And with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be disgraced, will not be put to shame. He will realize salvation. Because God never fails. Are you willing this morning? There's no other rabbi like him. He's not an ordinary rabbi. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Savior of all who believe. A.W. Tozer wrote this, or said this, Wearing a cross will not make you a disciple. Carrying your cross does. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for such an amazing Savior. God, we confess to you this morning that we're completely depraved apart from you. We are unworthy. We could never earn your salvation. We could never earn forgiveness of sins. We could never do enough. But God, by your grace, you sent Jesus Christ who is completely holy and righteous. He took our sins on Calvary's cross. He bore our sins. He satisfied your demand for sin. Your righteous demand. God, that we could have life. That we could walk with you and have, have an intimacy with you. And have a home in heaven one day. God, we also thank you for the fellowship that brings we're one family in Christ. We're one people. God, may we, this morning, with all of our hearts, may we follow you. By your power, may we be willing to forsake everything, give up everything to follow you. For you are worthy. You are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand. Let's turn our eyes to the King of
two churches coming in. Praise be to the Lord. Thank you, Mitchell. Actually, Mitchell, if you can close it in prayer. Yes. I'm <laughs> Let us pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you, God. Uh, God, for your grace. God, for your mercy. God, for the gospel. God, for your Holy Spirit indwells everyone who confesses you as the Lord. And God, for bringing um, two bodies, two churches. God, not in... Um, any partiality or any shape or form, but God, for the same price, for the same goal, and that is for your glory. God, how awesome it is to see your hand at work. God, and what you have brought together in this partnership, this relationship, God, of believers coming together for the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples. God, so we give thanks there. Lord, I thank you for your word, God, for the holy scriptures, Lord, that were proclaimed today, Lord, that it may... Be received humbly in our hearts. God, to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Forsaking all things. And if we want to follow you, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow you. God, we corporately, as believers, God, confess and ask, Lord, for forgiveness. And that you would grant us repentance in anything, in any sin in our life, God, that has prevented us from completely 100% following you. God, we pray, Father, that you would grant that to us. That you are continuing to change our hearts and conforming us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, so we lean not and trust not in our own understanding, but we lean on your Son acknowledging Him in all of our ways that You will make our path straight. So God, in the midst of uncertainty and chaos all around us, Lord, there is one thing that is true. You are not. And Father, we gather here today worshiping You, giving You glory, not here to be blessed, but God, to glorify You. But a result of that, whether it be conviction, encouragement, admonition, whatever it may be, God, Lord, it is from you. And may we receive it. May we leave this place different than when we came in. God, that you are doing a work in us, Lord, for he who began to work in us will bring it to completion to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you, God. And ask that you would be in the midst as your word promises. As we fellowship, we break bread, we get to know one another. And, Lord, that we will see and begin to see, Lord, something that is so rare in our culture. God, Acts 2, coming to fruition. Not just reading about it in your Holy Scriptures, but seeing the church, which you laid out, the foundation, the blueprint for your bride. Lord, that it takes place. God, we pray for this. Not only for Cornerstone and City Hope, but God, for every Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. We pray for this. Because it is not a competition, but it is to build the kingdom of God, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, making disciples to all nations of every tribe, nation, and tongue. So may that be, and may you be glorified in it. For we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you for it. It's in your will, by your strength, and all for your glory. We pray these things, and all God's people say. Amen. Amen. Amen.